Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we're talking about Unai Emery's home comforts as Aston Villa make it 11 wins in a row. Chelsea and Arsenal served up a thriller at Stamford Bridge. And we'll also be talking about Harry Maguire. Apparently he's a world-class defender again. Who knew? Uh, we'll also discuss Gary O'Neill getting his revenge on Bournemouth and joining me, Tom Clark. For all of that, we've got two of the finest football writers in the game, Alison Rudd and Tom Roddy, and a former Scotland youth international who decided to use his week in the hosting chair to bang on endlessly <laughs> about his nation making it to Euro 2024. Congratulations, Gregor Robertson. Well done. I was listening. Well done. I'm pleased. I'm pleased. Delighted. Congratulations. The power went to my head. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> always likely. Always likely. Now, before we get into all that action, we must reflect on Sir Bobby Charlton. The former Manchester United and England star died this weekend aged 86, and the tributes have been pouring in not just from the great and good of football, but also from the great and good of the Times. And you can read lots of them on the website now. Um, now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I saw Bobby Charlton play, but my dad did, and I always remember being a young lad, and I wanted to be a goalkeeper when I was going, growing up, so I'd always stand in goal in the garden, and my dad would try and ping shots at me. Now, bless him, he's not blessed as a footballer, my dad, uh, but he'd always try and describe some of the greats that could hit the ball really well, and Charlton was always one of them. He'd say, he'd just, you know... He'd, he'd whack it like nothing else, like no one else you've ever seen. Um, thankfully, Matt Dickinson is slightly more poetic than my dad. Uh, only a smidge, but this was his piece in The Times uh, talking about the way that Charlton struck a football. Uh, and he wrote, perhaps the most iconic sight in all English sport was, and still is, Sir Bobby Charlton on a swaying run preparing to strike a football at goal, off either foot with thunderous force. A goal-bound shot from Charlton was an event. It was an occasion that brought a thrill of anticipation as well as, with extraordinary regularity, a great roar of appreciation as the net bulged on impact. Long before a dink from Lionel Messi or a knuckleball free kick from Cristiano Ronaldo, the sight of Charlton striding forward with deceptive speed and, without breaking his stride, smacking the ball from long distance was as thrilling as football could be to millions around the world. See, and my dad would probably go at this point, yeah, see, whack it. Um, <laughs> but that is one of the many pieces you can read on the Times website all about Sir Bobby Charlton now. Um, Alison, any pieces that caught your eye in the tributes, reflections about the great man? Well, yeah, the Times interviewed him, uh, Damien Whitworth of the Times interviewed him in 2007, so we, we, we reprinted an extract from that, which knuckled down into the fact that one of the fame, strangely, one of the famous things about Sir Bobby was the fact that he had a, this this family rift, and him and Jack fell out because of the relationship with their mother Sissy, who was a, a great character by all accounts, but so was Sir Bobby's wife, a character, and there was a bit of a clash of personality, and you know it got to the point where you know the grandmother isn't sending Christmas cards or gifts to the, her grandchildren, and you just think, oh, this is. <laughs> I find it really upsetting, actually, because I've got two sons, and the idea that 
one would fall out with me and the other would fall out with his brother because he'd fallen out with me and then there would be this animosity is I I just think it's it's just very moving actually and then underneath in the game today we've got that extract where Sir Bobby sort of basically backs his wife and says you know I had to do the right thing which was stick by my wife but Tony Cascarino who of course uh, worked under Jack Charlton says that Jack would always defend his brother and and didn't want any slurs on his character at all and, and really bigged up what an amazing player he was so there was clearly love and respect between the two brothers but no rapprochement which was I found very moving actually yeah, he's got that that image of them embracing on their knees mm. on the Wembley Turf in 1966 as well. It's extraordinary, the two brothers and mm. and World Cup winning team. Uh, and I, I agree. That's the kind of the most kind of poignant moments that have leapt out to me from all the coverage is the that estrangement and how they're actually very different people. Like yes, physically, <laughs> um, you know, in playing style and personality. And you know, I seem that I kind of an ability to, I don't know, forgive and forget and move on is something that stayed with them for a long time. Yeah. It's very sad. It's one of the many, many pieces that you can read on the Times website now. There's also Matt Lawton on how the Bobby Charlton legacy defined the Alex Ferguson years at Manchester United, which is a fascinating read as well. Uh, and Martin Samuel, of course, who appears on Thursday's show, um, so I'm sure we might discuss this a bit more, but talks about how in this age of YouTube and every single game, the, the fact that we we see Charlton in moments and we've all seen it, we've seen those YouTube clips and those great goals that Matt Dickinson talks about almost makes it more rare and more more special. So I thoroughly recommend you to check out all those pieces on the Times website. Now, moving on to the action, because there is lots and lots of action to discuss. It appears that we have a five-team race for the Premier League title. That's just two points separate Manchester City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Tottenham and the mighty Aston Villa. That's right, Unai Emery's team cruised past West Ham. No easy feat, of course, with David Moyes at the helm. Um, and our pal, Tony Cascarino, who Alison mentioned there already, in his other piece in the game today, um, he thinks they can reach the top four, Gregor. Is he deluded, old Tone? Absolutely not. Uh, Emery took over on October 20th, and since then, they're the fourth best team in the country. So um, why would they not have Champions League aspirations? Um only City, Liverpool, Arsenal. He, you know, he he referenced afterwards that there's seven teams that they're trying to kind of catch because it's a, you know, you add in Spurs this year, um, but they're very much in that conversation. Um, and the home form thing is remarkable. I think mm. it's the fourth team that he's won ten consecutive home games with mm. as a manager. There's something he's got something about making a kind of home a fortress. Um, and Villa Park was a place that was sort of crying out for that to happen. You know. I'm, covered a lot of games there when they were in the championship and it's still it's just one of the great places to go and watch football in, in England and it feels like they've been a bit of a sleeping giant for a long time um, and there are signs that, that they're kind of waking up and there's so many so many positives that Douglas Louise in midfield is just turning into an absolute star like I think it's the sixth, sixth game he scored in a row but more than that as well it's him and, and Kamara alongside each other they're so kind of all action combative uh, but I've got a great passing range. I have a goal threat. They are the f- kind of foundation, I think, for everything that positive that's going on. And then you know, Ollie Watkins is stealing the show up front. But amazing, amazing turnaround in a, in the space of a year. Tom, what do you think it is? Because it, it does come back a lot to Emery. Because it's interesting. Gregor mentions a player like Douglas Weese. It's not like a, 
he came in and then signed all these players. A lot of the players that are there, Ollie Watkins, of course, as well, have that feeling of that untapped potential that he now seems to be getting out of them. What what do you think it is that they do? They just look more intense. Do they look more like they have a clear plan? What is it about Villa at the minute? Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of it is clarity from Emery. I mean, <clears throat> if if listeners haven't read Johnny Northcroft's interview with him, the the first newspaper one on one that Emery has done, um, I would recommend it because it's a great read and it's one of those Johnny puts himself into the interview because very early on he makes the point that he wants to jump out the window and go straight onto the training pitch in the pouring rain and do a training session with him because he is that inspiring and and the the intro is this great story about how Emery's first day at Villa he says I I I'm not happy to be here and of course it you can tell he just grabs the attention of players and uh, another part of it that I thought um, jumped out at me was was Ollie Watkins because I, I've thought of Ollie Watkins as similar in a way to Marcus Rashford in the sense of he's a player who you're all you're you're always waiting for him to keep consistently playing at a certain level and he he has peaks and troughs and I think at at a club like Villa, where they were before mid-table, you can do that. You can go on a run of games where you score five goals in ten games and you're catching pe- people's attention, our our attention, and we're talking about it. But then you go ten games without a goal. That was what he was kind of doing before. But Emery really seems to have tapped into what he can do by being really clear with him and... Uh, Watkins has spoken before about how even though it sounds so simple he was just really clear with Watkins saying just stay in the box and and also I think a lot of players talk about the traits of managers and this this happens in every workplace not just football the traits of managers being protecting them and I think a story, uh, an example of that comes from the Emery and Watkins relationship because Watkins went through a period where he wasn't scoring goals and Emery said to him, yeah, but I see all of the work you do around that, how hard you're working. I've had former players tell me that they can see all of the work you're doing around the team for the team and you have the respect of me you've got the respect of the players and you've got the respect of the club and other players outside this club and you just think if you heard that you would feel so invested in that manager and so I think that I think that is uh, that alongside a tactical acumen that is he's clearly a an elite manager and one of the other thought I had was that I think Villa might benefit from the fact he's been through that Arsenal experience. Mm. So I don't think... He tends to be a a pretty loyal guy anyway, but if suddenly another club came looking and going, actually, yeah, let's give him a chance, I don't think he'd jump out of that. I think the, the ambition of the project at Villa and the players he's got, I, I think he'll be there for a while. Now, the Watkins... What, it's really interesting, though, because that you've summed up perfectly that 
the short history of Ollie Watkins football player, which is that it didn't matter if he wasn't scoring because he wasn't lightweight, he was still contributing to the team. But Emery has told him, I want you to be in the box. He said all those nice things about how much you work and how useful you are, and you're not lightweight. But he's actually also said, you're here to score goals. I want you to stay in the area and score them. And that that's the key, isn't it? So he's bolstered his confidence by saying, you're just such an important part of this team. So he's without without it sounding negative, oh, but you're not scoring enough goals regularly enough, he sort of got both out of him. Mm. So he still works hard, but he does it in a more focused closer to Galway so we're seeing him being more productive mm. that's the clever bit you could go in to Villa and ruin Otley Watkins and make all that he does that's extra not worth worth enough by saying well you're, you know you're the striker score some goals he's not done that and yet he has done that by saying uh, if you could just stay in the box more thank you mm. I've got to say his, his, his post-match interviews are really impressive too I thought after this game there was one with Dean Smith and he was really kind of you know, saying Dean, he owes Dean Smith a lot. Dean Smith brought him to Brentford from Exeter and to Villa. And then there was one, uh, I think it was with the BBC afterwards, where he was saying it was a bit more analytical and he was talking about how he's worked a lot on just repeating actions that he knows he's going to do in the game over and over. Because of that reason, it's like sometimes coming short, trying to move the defender, coming short to go long. Because a lot of Villa's play is quite direct. Like You don't want to say they're a direct team, but it's... It's vertical. Mm. It's pretty dynamic, you know, and he's the one who's who's making those runs in behind. So he's been working a lot on that in the training ground. Um, but he also just, he's just, I think he's quite an impressive individual. Oh, yeah. I think he is. I, I remember doing a profile for uh, of Watkins when he first got his, his first England cap. And I spoke to a few people from Exeter and one phone call led to another and I found myself on the phone with his mum. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dale C. May. She was the singer, wasn't she? She was, yeah. yeah. And... Like so, it's, having a, just half an hour on the phone with her, you're, you're no surprise that he's he is. That she would bring up a good good kid. Why, why do you say that? What 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 kind of thing are you talking about there? She like it was probably the the happiest, most kind of joyous interview I've ever done. She was so so happy and proud. But more than that, she and was, she was happy to speak to you because sometimes yes. we would we you know you guys would call up a parent or anyone yeah. and be like, no, go away, you're a journalist. Horrible well, I person. mean, I, you know, I didn't just like cold call her. I got it's one of his best friends was Matt Jay who played for Exeter, and he put me in touch and said she's happy to speak and stuff. So, right. and that you know it's perfect. You got great insight, and she t- told the stories about when he put up two pence in a machine at the fair and a little ball bounced out and he started doing keepy uppies with it when he was a kid and so some great stories but more more than anything you found out about she was like a professional singer and I think he had two two, two other siblings and so she she was a single parent and she would have to you know get him to training or get get him to Matt Jay's house so that another parent would take him then she would go off and perform and then she would have to come back she, would, she was like doing so much for for her family and stuff and you could tell that like that, she would bring up a good kid, basically. Mm. And you see, I just think it came across to me in that interview. You've seen, you've seen him in a, a few more interviews recently. That he's very measured and composed, but he's also an intelligent guy, and he's kind of, you can see that he's desperate to take this chance and and always improve. And I think he sees England as a. He said that before the last call up. In fact, Gareth Southgate said, you know, I've, people said when I scored my hat trick before against Hibs, it's only against Hibs. I've scored in the Premier League. I don't think I can do any more. Mm. It was like seeing it quite pointedly, and he got the call. Yeah, Unai Emery definitely had a big impact on Ollie Watkins. But coming back to Emery and Villa, 
it was interesting reflecting on this game for me. You know, Tom, you talked about Arsenal before, and you've obviously got David Moyes who had his uh, ill-fated spell at Manchester United. What is it about these kind of managers that, for us, and this is maybe maybe us as a responsibility as journalists, that these managers go to the big clubs and they become part of the narrative of it's a joke, and that it was for Emery at Arsenal. They were struggling, they were going through hard times, and he became part a part of the kind of negative narrative around them. But then he goes to Aston Villa, just a little bit, little bit further down the table, a little bit further down the pecking order, a little bit further down the kind of aspirations. Oh, and it's a perfect fit. It's fantastic. It's just a perfect fit. <laughs> what What is it about these guys? Is it that they're not as attractive playing style, Gregor? You know, you talked about vertical, maybe a bit more direct. Obviously, Emery's made his reputation on being quite solid to beat, quite hard to beat um, at Sevilla and in Spain. What is it? Anyone jump in? Someone I, go. I think it's. <clears throat> I think a lot of it is authority. Mm. I think he has the authority at Aston Villa, partially because they built a in in a similar way to what Man City did in order to bring Pep in um, they built a foundation where the executive is, is, is all people that he has worked with before that's what Villa have done so he has the support of everyone around him Emery so he has so then he has the authority I think at Arsenal he went in there and it was it's always going to be a an a, an impossible job almost to replace. They were in flux. They were in. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. kind of Yeah, it was always going to be a big transition. Yeah. Yeah, and and he is. I just don't think his face fit at mm. the time. Um, and he, he, even though it's different to uh, Sir Alex Ferguson and David Moyes, because you've just got constant success and having to match that. Ar- Arsenal wasn't the same, but it was managed in a. It was managed in a certain way for such a long time, and they had to find their feet again. and And Emery, Emery, I think most people would have failed. Mm. There has been something as well about the. You know, we said this before he arrived about he's always done best with teams where there's players where there's no egos, and it's like, as you say, that kind of rung down from the real elite, where you're almost like a. You're trying to break into that. Yeah, that's where he's, historically he's done his best work as well. So, you know, because Paris Saint Germain, although his success domestically, didn't didn't do it in Europe. So, sometimes that's a tag that people are, you know, are given. They might not like it, but and it's sometimes that will come down to the style of play as well. I think because I'm not saying that Villa, are, you know, Villa are good to watch. They're so dynamic. They're so, they look so physical. Yeah. Now it's the pace and the kind of yeah. intensity that yeah. I really like about them. And I think sometimes with modern football, maybe, I don't know whether you guys would agree, that if you are being a bit more direct and a bit more vertical, and if can, you're doing it quickly, it negates the you know the need for passy, passy, pass, pass, pass all the time. But they're also it's still exciting. Yeah, but they're also slightly more content, I would say, to, to not have the ball mm. than, than the most elite teams. The most elite teams nowadays, they want 65% possession plus. Villa really don't do that. They're, they're very intelligent in that they'll either sit in a low block... And pick the times to press, or when it's you know, when the ball's turned over quickly, they'll be they'll be after it even higher up the pitch. So, but they do that like very it's very regimented. But a lot of the the basis is for what they're doing without the ball, mm. and then from there they spring forward. And they, I think they've you know the the pace that they break with now with Diaby and Watkins, uh, and also like as I say, one of those materials joining and John McGinn as well as I think is is. His level's gone up even further and further, and he's 
from from the player he inherited. That's it. That's one of the biggest examples of the improvement that, that you've seen in this Villa team. So, um, and that's and that's one of the points as well, isn't it? Why Emery's been so impressive is because it's quite simple. But coaches are there to improve players, and at Villa, you have there's so many examples of that at Villa. Yeah, I mean, it must be a big thing for ownership as well, because Tom, you spoke about the kind of ambitions of the owners, and there is a willingness to spend money. You know, DRB cost a lot of money in the summer, but I, I wonder whether they're after the kind of big spending that perhaps maybe is a few years ago and that you still see clubs like Manchester United falling foul of owners being able to say well there's quite good players there already can we not find a guy who can get a lot out of them and that's clearly where Emery falls into that category I think he was um, to answer your original question I think he was derailed at Arsenal though I don't think he was himself because Mm. when he joined he People latched on to the fact that he has always got experience of managing the biggest egos in the world, which you'll find at PSG. And then it all became about what's he going to do about Mesut Ozil. It just, it just didn't become what he wants from a job, I don't think, which is to drill down into the details, be egalitarian, work them very hard and everyone to buy into it. Instead, he found himself press conference after press conference being asked about one individual player so and being told why, why haven't you got why haven't you got the magic wand with Urzel that's what you're here for the one, one thing he said in that interview as well about Arsenal was he, a lot of the things that, that Mikel Arteta has done were in his plans to do and I know it's an easy thing to say but like part of that is moving these guys out of the building mm. and he didn't you know you couldn't do that straight away you can't do that overnight so you know I think he he saw what needed to be done and he didn't get the time to do it. And that's that's always the sort of balance that you have when you're a manager at an elite club. Absolutely. Time for my favourite game of the season so far. I say a team, you say the final league position they will finish in. <laughs> Changes every week. <laughs> Aston Villa. Alison. Sixth. Tom Roddy. I was going to go sixth too. Gregor Robertson. Fifth. Ooh. Sod it, I'm going to say fourth, why not? Aston Villa fans, get in touch if you want to say well done and how much you love me as a host of this podcast. Now, <laughs> uh, moving on, the team they might have to get uh, challenging to if they want the real aspirations of the top four is Manchester City, of course. Now, we thought it only fair that we should mention them after a win <laughs> because generally, so far this season, whenever they've won, we've gone, oh, City have won, that's a bit boring. Um, and when they lose, we talk about them uh, in more detail. But they did win, they beat Brighton 2-1 at home. They're, you know, they're top of the table. Greg, are they cruising? Do we think this they're is not a cruising? Bit, this, what, this, this is what I wanted to ask. What, what are Manchester City looking like? Because you know, Julian Alvarez, incredibly exciting. Erling Haaland, a little bit stuttery at times. Formation changing quite a lot. Injuries, Pep would say. What, what are City showing us so far this season? Is there a bit of a treble hangover? I don't think there's a treble hangover. I think that as we've said before. They lost players who were kind of part of this serial winning machine, and the players are coming in in their place. Like you know, Doku was was electric, but we, it's it's the Premier League's new forum and it's a new club, it's a new environment. Same of a couple of a few players, I think that that's gonna it's gonna take they're gonna take some time to acclimatise, and it won't all he won't always play like that. I mean, he won't always play against James Milner either. Um, so there are there are also we saw how important Rodri is now. That's that was clear when he comes back in the team they win. Um I just think that I think they are stuttering a little bit. I don't think that the, you certainly can't say they're cruising. Mm. Um but I think that's true of a lot of teams in, in the in the Premier League this season. Um and still Manchester City stuttering and being top of the league <laughs> says a lot about Manchester City. So Why do I, you think they're stuttering? I like I say I think it's it's losing Gundogan, losing Mares. 
Um, I just feel that I think Gundogan in particular was like yeah. the kind of metronome in midfield, but also a bit of a leader as well. Not like you know a kind of old-fashioned England sense of leadership, English style of leadership, but someone who just always got on the ball and took responsibility. Um, and now you know that's wh- whoever comes in his place mm. is not. It's, it's a question with question mark whether they can do it or not. Rodri looks like he's someone who's willing to st- who will step up into that. And you saw when he was missing how much they 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 missed that, but. Yeah, I just I think that a change a change in a few of the key players at Man City is always, always going to take some time to to sort of yeah that de, think, that De Bruyne about being injured is quite an important part, yes. of, it, part of the chat. <laughs> yeah, although yeah. they have had that's been the case. On yes, and off very for true. A, for he's normally while. injured for a bit, isn't he, Tom? No, I think you're I think you're spot on, and it's interesting because he's when did Guardiola come 2016 uh, to the Premier League, and there is there's probably not been a season where you've arrived, City have arrived to the beginning of it, getting most of the players they've wanted and most players are desperate to go there. Whereas this season began with losing Gundogan, as you referred to, Gregor, looking like Carl Walker was going to go at one stage. So for for once, it's it's not like it was out of control, but it seemed like Guardiola hasn't had... The control he's had in the past, he's a right. He, I mean, last season is the was the biggest example because suddenly they get Erling Haaland and the squad is as good as you would expect it to be. It just couldn't be really be any better. And then this season, it's 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 weakened somewhat. It was it was interesting because I I was told that they view that the the squad might be slightly weaker but they view the locker room as stronger really mm. what because of because there's because fewer of senior characters. characters they managed to right. move out interesting who were a bit maybe disruptive yeah. and um oh we, oh so if i was poirot i would therefore conclude <laughs> that the players that gregor has said are not there anymore were the disruptive no. ones well certainly certainly not gundawan anyway <laughs> so what 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 are you saying then I'm saying that well, there, were yes. pl- there were players who were who weren't playing enough. Mares, Laporte. Mm-hmm. I would, I'm, you know, maybe I'm not Poirot, but <laughs> I, would say, I would say you could probably add two and two together. Oh, you'd look good out, with a Poirot. Figure, figure out who they are. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't keep you know this sort of wealth of talent happy all the time. That's that's the thing that Guardiola has kind of. I don't know. He, he doesn't he doesn't explain to them why they're not in the team. No. He doesn't really like it when they come and ask him either. Sterling too. Mm. So yeah. like it, now he's got a slightly younger, younger sort of base as well. I don't think I think Grealish is not can't get in the team just now. Um, he couldn't in his first season. He had a great season last season. He's got a competition now with Doku because, mm-hmm. as we say, he was just thrilling in that first half. He was. He was. Well, maybe you're not Poirot, but see if you can uh, solve this mystery for me, Gregor, because I've been away on holiday for only one week. And I come back and Harry Maguire is almost all of a sudden the most important player in Manchester United's team. Man of the match uh, in their win against Sheffield United. The question I wanted to ask, I don't want, I'm obviously joking about him being suddenly a world-class player again, but you know, it's almost interesting talking about some of the qualities we talked about with Unai Emery and Aston Villa and bringing up these players in a kind of, oh, we're not expected much. Manchester United have won two on the trot now. <laughs> Their goal scorers have been Scott McTominay and Diego Dalot. Johnny Evans and Harry Maguire are playing in central defence. Is this a good thing for Eric Ten Hag that he's getting a lot out of these kind of squad players and he's battling through and he's one two on the bounce without some players, 
or is it actually a sign that maybe not only this squad but you know the club and everything are still so 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 far off a big elite top six team Tom you're nodding along yeah well it just the the goal scorers um, <laughs> just sums up the issue um, for me the, the fact that the win over Brentford was Scott McTominay um, uh, who Gregor will like to talk about another a, Scottish player yeah a long Prolific time um, and then in this game again and and Dallow's, you know, worldy finish, they're, it's not... They're, they're really scrambling results at the moment. And that, you know, again, it wasn't an impressive performance against mm. Sheffield. But good teams United. win when they're playing badly, etc., etc., when the back's against the wall. Yeah, but then when you look at the form <laughs> guide, they're, they're also a ba- a, sometimes a bad team losing badly um, yeah. this season. But they... I, I, I said, I think towards the beginning of the season that there would be a lot of pressure put on Rasmus Hoyland because of these problems and that's what's happened Mm. now uh, I think Paul Hurst may have even written about it this morning that they've um, they've got he's got no league goals he's got this back injury problem and there is a hell of a especially with Marcus Rashford being out of form and there seems like this something really wrong with him at the moment there is a lot of pressure on on Hoyland because it they cannot continue relying on McTominay to yeah. be the goal scorer well Gregor might disagree with you on that one but coming back to Maguire Gregor someone that we talked about early in the season with the comments and Gareth Southgate and fans booing him and even his mum coming out and defending him and you said at the time you wanted to see a bit of fight from Maguire if he got the chance on the pitch. Now, as Tom's outlined, we shouldn't be getting carried away and saying Manchester United are back, but he's been put into the team and he's performed, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I think we'd give it a bit more time, personally. I think uh, I think, I think if you speak to people who who have watched Manchester United recently live, they would say Johnny Evans has probably been <laughs> has been just as important, which says a lot. You know, we're talking about what does this say about Manchester United? That they're back four, three of them, Lindelof, Evans and Maguire. Dallow, you know, Dallow has improved in the last year and a bit. But um, but wasn't it nice to see Maguire looking confident and carrying the ball out from the back and look, looking not, you know, browbeaten and yeah. sorry for himself? And that, ten, that's ten nice, Hag, isn't it? Ten Hag did say that afterwards. He's doing the things we want from him. And, he list, and some of those Alisson's just listed there. So that does suggest a kind of a, a growth in terms of his kind of confidence and performance. I don't know. Was the last game Brentford that yeah. they won in the kind of two goals in the last minute from from McTominay? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they played against Sheffield United. They've got one point. I'm sorry, it's too early to be seen. Well, I, I hope I hope very much nice. that he, it's, I hope very much he gets a run of games and we see the the old uh, Harry Maguire coming back to the fore. But yeah. it's far too early to see that that's happened. Of course, we want to see Harry Maguire come back to the form he had. Why would you not? That's really mean spirited. <laughs> well, have I have I have I mentioned on this podcast that um, I, alert, I alerted England to Harry Maguire? I, yeah, I think you're about to if you haven't before. <laughs> so please, apologies if I've mentioned it before. But I went to interview Steve Holland, uh, assistant to Gareth Southgate. It was for a piece about um, what it's like to be always the number two in football. You know, people who have sort of carved out that role for themselves they're not they don't seem to have the ambitions to become a number one they are quite happy being the assistant and have made that their thing and they're very good at it and uh 
he was very relaxed. So we we just sort of chatted. When was this? This was before Harry Maguire was picked for England. So so quite a long time ago. Yeah. And so we were talking about the team, and I got a bit carried away and thought I'd advise Steve Holland on who he should be <laughs> looking at. Was there a vacancy for number three? <laughs> <laughs> And said, uh, I said to him, one player you must you must look at is Maguire. This is when he was at Hull, and he'd taken my eye because he was doing things that you don't do at Hull very often, which is he would carry the ball out from the back, and he'd look almost Ronald Koeman like actually in those early years. And I said that's the sort of player England need if they're going to progress and become a more ball playing team you know he's 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 your proper defender there he's got he's got he's got the aura and the ability to to know when know when to move in and out from the back and to play a decent pass and Steve Holland sort of tapped his nose and said yes we have we have been looking at him actually <laughs> but he hadn't been called up or anything and then he was called up a few I don't know a few weeks later so I told everyone that's me I I <laughs> I, I actually called him up and so I do have a soft spot for him because he was if you can think back then I don't know he's talking 2016ish if you look back then he was really promising defender and I know that his downfall has been that at times I mean even even since 2016 I think we can say the pace of the game has grown and he does look like an oil tanker in a very oily piece of water trying to turn it takes too long for him to turn but in all other respects he he, he is an intelligent defender and when he's got confidence it's a nice thing to have from a team perspective somebody who sees the moment when you do carry the ball out and suddenly you're on the front foot you're the team that's, that's just suddenly turned defence into attack because of an intelligent shift of the ball and an assessment of where the players are on the pitch. And so I, I don't, I'm glad he, he got the official man of the match in that game. I completely accept Gregor's point that Sheffield United are not, are not Real Madrid. But it's nice that it, it, all the opprobrium he's had to suffer and the caricature and being written off, that he still had the confidence to conduct himself in the way that he did. Absolutely. Well, Gregor might not be Poirot, but Harry Maguire is Ronald Koeman. There you go, again, podcast <laughs> listeners. You get all the comparisons with us. Um, I think, Gregor, you might be alluding to Manchester United's fixtures that are coming up to really check on Harry Maguire's uh, levels of performance. Um, a massive game against Copenhagen in the Champions League, and then just the small matter of trying to stop Erling Haaland and Julian Alvarez in the Manchester derby next weekend. Um, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you get in touch. And even if you're not, you can email me at tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Tell us what we're not mentioning, what you'd like us to discuss in future shows. And if you've been enjoying the Rugby World Cup, make sure you listen to our sister podcast, The Rook. They'll be talking about England's heartbreak against South Africa and they'll be looking ahead to the World Cup final. Just search The Rook wherever you get your podcast from. Stick with us. We're talking Arsenal and Chelsea next week. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined by Tom Roddy, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson. And up next we are talking Arsenal-Chelsea. Arguably the match of the weekend, do we think? Um, in terms of excitement, potentially. Um, in terms of significance, too. 2-2 uh, draw. I wanted to ask first whether Arsenal coming back was more significant than Chelsea throwing it away for either team. Alison, you're a philosophical type. What do you reckon? Am I? Oh, I've not been called that before. Uh, thank you, Tom. That's really lovely of you. <laughs> um, I, uh, well, uh, actually, that is interesting in itself because I think the mood music around this was completely that Chelsea had played the better football, looked like they were going to win. And even though they threw away, <laughs> literally, the the three points... There, there was very little negativity about what they did. It was still, it's still a great performance and it's an improvement on what they've been giving. And there were signs of Pochettino getting uh, some sort of team spirit together and that they were a bit more cohesive. There were some individual performances that were great. Um, my my personal man of the match was Cucurella. I think he's been uh, uh, lambasted unfairly and not been given the chance to show that he's he was everywhere. He wasn't just that he kept, he kept Saka quiet. He was he was your proper. He was the fafta clerk of the of the football world that day. He was he was everywhere, scurrying around, making himself a nuisance. Lovely energy levels, but it's interesting, isn't it? I think what that all shows is that Chelsea have had such a terrible start that to get a two two draw when you're two nil ahead is still not considered a dreadful dreadful thing. It's still full of positivity because it was, and no one wants to spoil that. You see. Because the narrative was written before the Arsenal comeback that Chelsea have probably played the best football they've played since the, since the first half against Liverpool, probably. And the fact that they didn't build on that game against Liverpool, which is also a draw, and that they've been bitty and slightly pathetic and, you know, this terrible sort of they're winning on XG but they're losing, actually, a narrative was getting a bit embarrassing. So it is... It was fascinating that nobody, nobody in football wanted to give up on the narrative of this is still a great performance and result for Chelsea. Is that so wrong, though? Given all the things you've just outlined in terms of the time that they've had, long period of real struggles, for a while we were talking about they couldn't score a goal. Is that so wrong that we want, we, the football public, and that they, the club and the fans, want to hold on to that rather than think, 
God, we cocked it up again. No, it's not wrong, but it's just interesting mm. because at, at another point in the season or another two local-ish rivals, I, it wouldn't be that. The narrative would be completely different. Yeah. Usually, if this happens in a London derby, you are pulling your hair out and going, oh my God, we were winning 2-0. I think the reason is because what most people expected from this game was a reality check for Chelsea because they'd beaten Brighton in the cup, but Brighton, that was the worst I'd seen Brighton play in a long time. Then they beat Fulham, who didn't have a goal scorer and didn't play that well. <clears throat> and then what was... The, oh God, I can't remember what the game was after that now. But then they they won another game, which wasn't <laughs> which wasn't a wholly impressive uh, opponent. Um, Tom's going to very quickly I'm tell gonna, me now. Quick, 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 quick. And... Burnley. Burnley, one. exactly. Um, so then you arrive at this game against... I remember watching the teams come out as well, and at the um, obviously they, they line up for the uh, for the Premier League uh, song and everything. And it, it, I was looking at them, and there is such a mismatch in size of the two teams. And I was thinking, wow, if this turns into a real physical encounter, because Arsenal is so much bigger. I, I think it's kind of been lost at what a small so- uh, side Chelsea are. And so even more so before that game, I thought Chelsea could end up getting bullied here. And actually, I don't know if it was overconfidence of Arsenal, but they were they were so sloppy. The worst I'd seen mm. them play in ages. And Chelsea were at the best, I think, I've seen them play under Pochettino. And add into that the context that it was... Arsenal's best team and Chelsea were missing at the very least four certain starters from Pochettino's best team you've got a guy who couldn't get into a a Man City winger from last season who couldn't get into Guardiola's team starting up front for you and Cole Palmer I'm referring to and he he was absolutely excellent but I, I agreed with Alison I mean my I think the the measure of Pochettino's work is Mark Cucurella and Michaela Mudrick because the you could see the amount of pressure they have felt in being very expensive signings and clearly they never ever settled last season and the confidence just waned immediately and it looked like it just wasn't going to work out at all suddenly you know mudrick's goal is is a is a fluke you know it's a it's a i saw him say it was it was something between a cross and a shot uh but it, it's a fluke but he actually he deserved that because again before the game i saw saka who was always going to start that game saka up against Cucurella with supported by Mudrick and I thought oh there's trouble there that's where Arsenal can win this game and Cucurella as Alison said was outstanding yeah I think he's playing with anger actually mm-hmm. at the moment and Mudrick's goal even though it was a fluke it actually comes from his discipline supporting defensively down that left hand side and then 
Chelsea win the ball off Arsenal through the pressure leads to the goal. So maybe it was a fluke, but I think his performance was really deserving of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting when you look at Chelsea's fixtures in light of the thing you point you were making, Tom, with those kind of easy run and then a reality check. Um, they've got Brentford at home, then they've got an EFL Cup game against Blackburn, and then they've got Tottenham, Man City and Newcastle, three in a row. So they've got these next kind of two fixtures to get that confidence mm. there again, um, if it has been dented, as Alison suggested it might have been before those run of great games. Gregor, where do you think they're at, Chelsea, overall? Still very early in the season, of course, but we're talking on this show, I find, about kind of where teams are at overall um, at this stage. Where do you think Chelsea are at? You you've, know, been, you've been critical in the past. You've been to some games where you thought, what what's going on here? Yeah, although it has often been individuals. Like, it, you know, I was at the Villa game and Mudrick still, I think, he, he beat Cash once to the byline in the first half, but a lot of the time he's just running down dark alleyways. He looked he looked devoid of confidence, but I agree now he's, he needed something to... To lift him, and if you see him uh, playing with confidence, I think it's it's going to be terrifying for for the Premier League. Should be because <laughs> he's so fast; he's just mm. it's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, improvement in players, but also kind of working working Palmer and Gallagher sort of as what's the right word? Tony called them eight eight and a halfs today, sort of inverted mm. eight and a halfs or something like that in his column. But you know they're like they're. You know, false nines almost. Although Gallagher is a little bit deeper, but and it's, and then Sterling, you know, Sterling. I think there was a, an average touch map as yeah. well, and Sterling was one of the most advanced yeah. players, and he was quite narrow. So when you look at the formation, it's not really telling the full story. It's you've got you've not really got an out and out striker, and you've got Pal, you've got Sterling moving in from from the right, coming in, coming inside, and Mudrik really staying a bit wider and and uh, terrifying fullback. So. I think I think actually finding some sort of solution to uh, a, a, what is a problem area, despite all the money they've spent, was you know said so, so much that they've not really got a striker who's, who's, who can be relied upon. Nicholas Jackson obviously has had his issues um, and their injuries, so finding a, some sort of solution to that is going to be really important for them. Um, How has Pochettino seemed in press conferences? How did he seem at the weekend, Tom? Yeah, I, it was funny actually. I was sat before the uh, before the game in the Stamford Bridge press box, and you get um, on you get the pre-match uh, interviews on broadcast, and in the press box they're on silent, and it flits between as Sky do. It flits between Arteta and Pochettino talking. And Arteta's got this kind of steely gaze where he almost looks like he's looking straight through the interviewer. And Pochettino's got this kind of warm, bubbly Sunday roast, having, <laughs> having a nice uh, Argentinian Malbec, not not uh, not not preparing for a North London derby where you could get absolutely slated if it goes um, wrong. So he's he, he seems. We saw him throughout the Tottenham period. We we saw him in this mode, this kind of optimistic, cheerful guy for the majority of it. It was towards the end where that mood changed. But he he is he is leading this, and I think he is the reason he is the reason why those players are finding their feet now because. I think he does he does believe in what they're doing and he believes it can work and you can see that in his mood. And it was interesting as well because his 
before the game, his reference to Mudrick was that he was a totally different guy to the one they saw three months ago. And they've le- this is part of it as well. They've now they've had the time to get to know players and their characters. They they know how to coach them, how to manage them, because they've now he's found out that Mudrick is quite a sensitive guy. He knows what he how to get him to respond. Mm. Shout out for Thiago Silva, though. Come always. On, come on. There should always be a shout out come for on. Thiago Silva. I think, there? but I do think he goes slightly under the radar. But it, it, every single match, I think, oh my goodness, he's going to be forty soon, <laughs> <laughs> and yet he, what he brings to Chelsea, which they really, really need. Is that level of? I mean, the, the minute he joined the club, he acted like he was born in West London. He's got that sort of. He's bought into the culture of the club. One of those players when they're not playing, he really gives them support from the, the either the dugout or the stands, or whatever reason he's not in the team. He's very passionate, and yet you, he he gives them that sense of identity um, on the pitch. He's full of passion, and yet he's timing as a defender is excellent he made some really good interceptions and blocks as he always does and he's nearly 40 I mean he's, he's phenomenal mm. they would they would be not in this we'd not be talking so positively about Chelsea and their young players if it were not for him there as well his influence is immense I think definitely I mean we're definitely proving that this is the game of the weekend because we've only talked about one team. Uh, so we must talk about Arsenal. Gregor, to go back to my initial question um, at the start of this segment about the significance of this result um, and performances. After last season, an incredible uh, challenge for the title from Arsenal, but accusations levelled at them that you can't beat Pep and Man City. Well, he's done that now. And then accusations that you occasionally bottle it, slash throw it away, slash can't cope with a pressured scenario comes back and gets a 2-2 draw when, as Tom says, they were incredibly poor in the first half, being outplayed. This is, this is a more of a real title-challenging team by Arsenal, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, that was the kind of headline, wasn't it? And in fact, it might have been your piece, Tom. Yes, <laughs> it was yeah. like they've shown the kind of champions' uh, credentials. They were gifted, the, the, the you know, by Sanchez, the route back into the into the game and then... Yes, then they threw three of them forward, and it was a delicious ball in by Saka. Gusto, me being a fullback, former fullback, you know, I was a bit his body shape wasn't right, but it was a great ball because it was very hard for the goalkeeper to come out and collect it, and really, really hard to defend as well at the back post for Tr- and Trossard uh, poked it in. So, and that was like one time where Cucurella kind of he, he gave him enough room just to get that cross in. Hmm. So. Look, it was, it, we talk about Manchester United saying find, they need to find a way to win. This, this, these are cliches, but find a way to get something from the game. It's, and, and they kind of did that. Yes, they were gifted the route back into it, but um, even Eddie Nketiah ran away at the end and he possibly could have could have nicked it for them. So Arsenal are another one of these teams, I think, who are just sort of... They're not, they're not really clicking into, into top gear yet. Um, and they're still, you know, right at the top of the table, so... Um, that bodes well for them, I think. He's a bit grumpy this morning, isn't he, Greg? <laughs> Sorry about that, listeners. He's, he's he's had two coffees. I don't think it's gone it's sat that well. Let's see if we can cheer him up by reminding him of one of his predictions from a few weeks ago. Gary O'Neill back at Bournemouth in, enacting revenge with Wolves. 2-1 win for them. Gregor, Iriola, we talked about it before this uh, international break and before this game. Still think he's got time? Yeah, that's just probably 
running down a little bit. Um, I feel a little bit sorry for him because a lot of the, a lot, of, particularly in recent weeks, just individual errors just keep absolutely killing them. Like oh, he got a man sent off in this, and then you know it looked like they were going to get a draw, and the goalkeeper plays a, a pass which was foolish in my view, and then even then Billing, I think it was, just made a hash of it and gifted them the gifted them the win. So, and that's been a recurring theme. I think you know, a couple of weeks ago, Zabarni slipped when he was trying to dribble out of defence, and I know that's the way he wants them to play, but still, these are mistakes that are ultimately uh, making 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 it a very very difficult start for him. Mm. Um, and there's been huge you know, spells of these of his games that they're like thrilling to watch too. Like often, there is a bit of an sort of element of Bielsa here because they're like basketball games they're so so committed to pressing high and being like full throttle and you know this is our way or the highway um, and yet they don't, they're not getting the results mm. so it will be interesting to see whether that's kind of maintained he actually said in this game they didn't want to to press press as high and, and quite so sort of full throttle in this game although in the first half particularly if you read Hamza's report he said it was like a basketball game still but he recognised that Wolves are one of the best counter-attacking teams in the league they are I read this morning that only Liverpool have had more direct attacks in the in the, in the Premier League and that's because of Neto hmm. and Cunha and it happened in the first half throughout again they just <laughs> they just like cut through them and there was so much space for Neto and Cunha to run into I think they, I think they both hit the woodwork in the first half so so you, why why is that happening then? Well, exactly. If he said we, we didn't mean to press yeah. quite quite so intensely this game, and they still were allowed to kind of be cut through like that, that's a little bit worrying. I think. Uh, I don't know. I think I think they possibly need to reassess a little bit because they're they're not reassess their style or reassess their manager. Not their manager. They're, I think they need to ease off a little bit because they're not quite convincing enough defensively. I mean, I mean, I mean, in, in backing up. Yep. That. You know that 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 high press. He, um, Alex Scott was fit and came back into the midfield, but he's not. He's a number eight. He's an all-action midfielder. He's not really someone who's who's whose instinct is to break is to to break up attacks. Uh, I, I don't see who that player is in their team. I mm. saw I saw them live um, at home to Chelsea, um, and they didn't press high often. They were they were they were quite grown up about it. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, they kept their shape, and they were the better team. I mean, Chelsea were in, in, still in the middle of a bit of a slump at that point, and with the XG jokes going around. But they, they, the point I'm making is they're capable of changing their shape and being disciplined for a full ninety minutes, and they didn't concede, and they should have won. So I don't. That's why I'm confused. If they're Capable of adapting to the opposition for for that game at home. Why can't they do it for? Well, you Wolves? get you get the impression he doesn't want to. So I don't know why he did it against against Chelsea, but Iriola is, is someone who's like pretty dogmatic, I think, in his in his approach and his thinking. So it's going to be interesting to see how long that lasts. Well, he's got Burnley next before Liverpool, Man City and Newcastle. It's just never such an easy thing as an easy game in the Premier League. Uh, we must mention Gary O'Neill and uh, Wolves. I very much enjoyed this quote after the match. Honestly, I feel no different to when we beat Manchester City. 
which I feel he should have said with a little wink as well. Um, <laughs> Although if you saw him on the pitch afterwards, I think we can see, you reckon see that wasn't true. Yeah, but it's it's good PR, isn't it? Um, yeah. Remind everyone of beating uh, Pep Guardiola at every opportunity. Wolves currently 12th, 11 points from nine games. They were one of the teams in our preview show that we talked about worrying about going down. I mean, is this all Gary O'Neill? Have some of the players stepped up as well, Tom? I think so, yeah. It was... It, <clears throat> it was one of those things where at the end of last season you're almost writing off Bournemouth's improvement under him as being an element of no pressure having absolutely no pressure and just responding to that but when you break it down and the the way they played this is Bournemouth last season the way they played so attractively under him and effectively I know they went through a slump of poor results <clears throat> but they were so effective and fun to watch as well to then go into Wolves in terrible circumstances really that the club was in a in an awful way and <laughs> and do the same thing immediately I, I think really shows the the measure of his potential as a manager as a coach um they've clearly bought into what he what he wants and what he expects and it's just whether they can maintain it really too early for anyone to make any sweeping statements about wolves being safe this season as long as gary o'neill's at the helm even though well, i just why did wouldn't it. he be at the helm he might get pinched by someone else given that all the things tom roddy's just talked about oh that i hadn't thought of it that way yeah could do but will they be all right do we think Oh, as, long right, as, Neto, as long as Neto's fit. Yeah. He's, he's, he's already so got integral. six assists. I think he's approaching, like, already having played more minutes than he did in the last season and a half. He's like, because he's had real, real troubles with injuries, but he, yeah. is so, he is so fast and so direct and so good in those count, those those transitional stages. You know, he's, he's still only 23. I think he's, you know, if he maintains anything like this form, he's he won't be at lose next year. He's he's a brilliant player, um, and I, I've said it before. I think Cunha is a brilliant player too. He just if he if he can find his goal scoring touch a bit more often. I think uh, Wang as well has been. He's had trouble with injury too, and he's another player. Every time I've watched him, I thought he's 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 solid. He's quick. He's he's smart as well. He's kind of good at link up play and and running behind. I think they've got a good front three um, and a decent foundation. And a lot of the foundation, a lot of it is down to. O'Neill and he's sort of I think he's I've said it already I think he's really meticulous and he's detailed in his coaching and he gives them a great platform to to kind of spring forward in these, these counter-attacks Hope and promise for Wolves then um, Brentford claiming their first home win of the season which was a bit of good news for them Alison Rudd and your Thomas Frank fan club uh, <laughs> so we're going to finish with them it's slightly gone under the radar their struggles I feel um, they've had matches like the one at Manchester United where they were they were the better team they should have won and then get sucker punched by Scott McTominay what would your assessment of their season been so far obviously overshadowed by missing Ivan Tony, but do you think they're kind of struggling struggling along without him been a bit unfortunate been a bit unlucky no I don't I mean yes any team would be better with Tony in it but Brentford had already proven that they could cope more admirably without him that wasn't the key I mean Rico Henry getting injured was was a big big downer for them he's exceptional exceptional fullback and again often at the heart of things they do well so that's 
been a problem. Um, I was there for their opening home game against Spurs. They played better than Spurs in that game. And I think then then, the, then comes along the Rico Henry injury and a few other problems they've had getting a t- the team out that Frank would like to have out. So that you know they're still they're still one of the smaller clubs on the smaller wage bills, and you know small tweaks here and there, problems here and there have a have a big impact on a club like that. They've never really looked awful, but they they've not they've not had that sense of momentum that they've had in their previous two seasons because of the 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 little upsetting tweaks that have happened. But I mean, you you either have faith. I mean, it's interesting that you've gone from. You've gone from Bournemouth talking about Brentford because Bournemouth decided not to have faith in someone who performed a miracle, basically. they The board came in and they ignored that O'Neill had done something that nobody thought could be done and decided they knew better. At Brentford, there's this overwhelming faith in Thomas Frank. So I think he could have carried on not getting the points and there would not be a whisper of him getting the sack because they have faith in his ability to keep reassessing and make it happen. They were fortunate in this game. Uh, my sister uh, plays this game called Last Man Standing in the pub. It's quite a big <laughs> money prize, actually. And you have to you have to have a different... You have to pick a different club every week that's going to win. You can't draw, they have to win. So she said, who shall I pick this? Because coming to the end. And who shall I pick? Who shall I pick? I said, well, you've got to pick Brentford. That's a no-brainer because Brentford love playing against teams who play expansive football. Burnley play expansive football, but they don't play it very well. So it's like exactly what Brentford would love to play against. It's like playing against Man City on a really bad day or whatever. So it was a no-brainer that they would be able to be solid and muscular and direct and effective against a slightly wimpy don't know what they're doing team in Burnley I'm very disappointed with Burnley this season I have to Mm. say and I think even though it was an easy win for them I think it will uh, underline that when they they get the tactics right they get them absolutely right and they do have you know Wissa's great and Buemo's great they have some fantastic players and um, they they will be absolutely fine I I would say they're going to they're not going to struggle they could possibly be top half once well, they're not going to keep Tony when he's back. But anyway, they, they, they're still capable of being top half. And the point is, the point is they have faith in the system and faith in the manager. And that counts for such a lot because I don't know what the atmosphere is like at Bournemouth at the moment, but it won't be nice. No. Yeah, I think the, f- the form guide for <clears throat> the two clubs are, are kind of similar. But with Brentford, Alison's absolutely right. They haven't been awful this season. It's masked the... the, the um, the form guide has masked how they've been playing. I think the United game <clears throat> was the sixth time this season that they dropped points from a winning position. So it wasn't like they haven't been playing well and they haven't had the foundations to pick up points. It's just they haven't been able to hold on yeah. so far. So I do think I do think they'll be all right. Whereas Burnley are just. <sighs> You see the stats. The only the only thing that Burnley topped and uh, topped Brentford for in stats were, uh, stats were passing. Mm. So like, which <laughs> was, is exactly exactly what, yeah. Exactly they, what knocked the want. they knocked the ball around. They knocked the ball around. Brentford Brentford had uh, twenty three shots to 
Burnley six. Like every you know, won all the duels. Uh, you know, aerials, everything, everything, everything except passes. <laughs> so Burnley are knocking the ball around, and they're just not—they're not incisive enough. They're not doing enough with it, and they're often causing their own problems yeah. as well. Very worrying times for Burnley. I just wanted to finish on a point Alison made uh, in passing in your very um, interesting summary of uh, Brentford's season so far. You said you don't think they'll keep Ivan Tony, and Tom Roddy is the man with stories about that that you've written for the Times website over the last month or so. Do we think that that's a high chance that he will move once he's able to play again leave Brentford oh yeah 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 uh, almost certainly I think January I think it'll happen in January um, in fact I may probably be surprised if he plays for Brentford again um, and my expectation is Arsenal I think they've <clears throat> they've looked at him um, and there are multiple clubs that have looked at him Ch- Chelsea he's on a list at Chelsea of of interest um but i think having you know you watch arsenal a lot this season and they create a lot of chances not this wasn't the case really on saturday but this season they create a, a lot of chances and they just don't take them that that's what they've lacked is a is a goal scoring striker and he moved to he moved agency this summer, um, Ivan Tony. He's gone to the Stella Group and even just his, I can't remember the phrasing exactly, but his quotes in that press release about taking control of your destiny or something mm-hmm. along those lines, um, it, it all points towards him moving. And and he believes he has always been hugely ambitious. Brentford are a club who they will definitely, definitely negotiate the best value they can we saw that with the David Raya deal they were they're not willing to let players go but it is a they accept it is a platform where players will aspire to another level and I think they are for the right price they are willing to allow that to happen Gregor good fit Arsenal Ivan Tony someone you've interviewed in the past Tom's talking about his ambition there this is uh, something they've always had in his mind, even back in the Peterborough days. Absolutely, and I, yeah, yeah. I interviewed him when he just signed for Brentford from Peterborough in League One, and he told me then he wanted to play for England, mm. which sounds like a bold thing for someone. And to they say. were in the Championship, right? That was still they were in the Championship. The championship. Yeah. yeah, that was his first real run in the Championship. So he'd barely played, I don't know, a dozen Championship games, uh, and he's, you know, he's saying he's, he's, he believes he's going to play for England pretty bold uh, and he has and he believes he can get to the top of the game and he, he's always believed that um, after a kind of wobble you know I played with him at Northampton Town many years ago and then he, he he went to Newcastle and he just he got caught up and I think he said he's admitted he didn't live his life kind of quite right and he had, had loads of loans never found a home found a kind of a place to rebuild his career at Peterborough and then decided to move to Brentford because they told they told them like you play in this team you're gonna have you're gonna have so many chances mm. and you're gonna score a lot of goals and and you'll either reach the Premier League with us or you'll go somewhere else to do it. So he's done that first step and now I think he he realizes that there's still another step to go. Do you think I, I'm not trying to retire Harry Kane from international duty, but when you look at England's lineage of strikers, we've been so so blessed for a long time and it's like who is going to be the next one after Harry Kane 
And in this podcast today, we've spoken about Tony and we've spoken about Ollie Watkins. Do you think either of those two could take N- over? Neither Harry Kane levels for me, but, but principally because they're such different players. And mm. I think even Tony and Watkins are different players, despite the way well, they, they came up through. they do have something in common, which what? is they do a lot of work beyond striking I thought you were going to say you spotted them on their rise to the top. <laughs> like well, obviously. <laughs> They're also both 27. And Harry Kane, you'd say he's got at least three or four more yeah. years at that level. So there may be someone else coming through then and they'll be in their 30s too. So I wouldn't say either is going to be the heir to Harry Kane's throne. I'd say that they're both vying to be the number two. Yeah. We will see what happens with Ivan Tony and Ollie Watkins and to make sure you're on top of all the latest transfer news from Tom Roddy and his colleagues, make sure you've got a time subscription. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday to chat about all the latest European action. Thanks for listening.